You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. When we started this series back in 2017, we welcomed nearly every general manager throughout the game. The interviews began as a featured part of the MLB Newsmakers podcast feed. There was so much interest in these, we ended up launching the Executive Access podcast on its own feed in the spring of 2018. Over the past few weeks, we've released a series of throwback episodes from that first season, featuring Nationals GM Mike Rizzo, Blue Jays President and CEO Mark Shapiro, Toronto General Manager Ross Atkins, and Indians GM Mike Chernoff. This week, we present our lengthy sit-down with Yankees General Manager Brian Cashman, who has held that position for more than two decades. Cashman discusses the experience of working for George Steinbrenner, the moves that helped shape the 1998 Yankees, what it's like to go on a free agent spending spree like he did in 2008, and what he felt as a first-time trade deadline seller in 2016. As we wait for baseball to return, I hope you enjoy this 2017 conversation with Yankees General Manager Brian Cashman. Brian, it's well known you began your Yankees career as an intern in 1986. Could you have imagined at that time you'd be still with the organization more than 30 years later? No, actually, uh, staying power was not something uh, that was synonymous with being a Yankee employee. <laughs> to say the least. Uh, you were a four-year starter, second base in college, Division three Catholic University, set a school record for most hits in a season, pump up your baseball career a little bit here. Uh, did you learn anything from your college career that helped you when you started working in professional baseball? I mean, uh, you just, again, uh, uh, you learn more about the game, the higher level you get a chance to play. So uh, back then, the NCAA rules were all different. So we were a Division three independent, but we played predominantly a Division one schedule. So got a chance to play against some, you know, really quality talent in the Northeast and, and do our spring trip down south. But, you know, so got a chance to play against some, you know, better competition, uh, which, you know, again, you live and you learn to, you know, as, as you size yourself up. And when I started doing the internship, you know, I worked in the minor league scouting department, and you got a chance to start seeing how people evaluate the amateur world. So it gave me a great perspective of uh, what my limitations really are, were because of my physicality. Um, so, uh, but yeah, you learn, you just learn more about the game. You know, you, you know, all of a sudden, instead of someone, you know, I, I didn't start seeing a a fork ball or a split finger pitch until I got into college, for instance. And so it was when it first started coming at me, you know, and the the bottom dropping out, like now I can relate a little bit better than just reading scattering reports and somebody's featuring a certain pitch. Like, they're, you know, you got a, you know, first-hand experience, even though it wasn't professional quality, it was still, you know, some of them were pretty interesting. And and, uh, so, again, you you live and learn with the experience you get. Did you always want to have a career in baseball? Was that... I want to be a player. I mean, uh, I think anybody who plays a game, you know, uh, you know, they play it because they love it, and and you know, you, I was no different than most kids dreaming that one day you could, you could somehow find your way into professional baseball. But obviously, I wasn't good enough for that. I never had any aspirations of being a you know a front office executive. That was never something I ever thought about. When did you? When did that turn for you? When you realized that the physical limitations were going to keep you from playing professionally? Uh, no. I mean, I got. I got a chance to, uh, I got a chance to do a uh, internship with the Yankees, and even even once that led to a full time position, you know, I, I still never looked at it as a long term career. Uh, and even once I, you know, you know, got the opportunity to, to grow with the Yankees, I became the assistant general manager. I think it was four years under Gene Michael and two under Bob Watson. During that time frame, I still was thinking about going back to college, getting a you know, uh, you know, a master's degree in something, whether it's going to business school or going to law school. And so I had just, you know, in my mind, I was having these discussions, what's in my best interest? Do I tag out as the assistant GM of the Yankees and go on to get, you know, a, you know, a better education and, you know, and get a real job in the real world? Um, but I'd say once George Thumberner offered me the GM position, you know, obviously that stopped. Jim Bowden once told a story about when you were first hired by the Yankees. George supposedly walked you into an office with Gene Michael, Lou Pinella, Bob Quinn, Dallas Green, and Sid Thrift, all former or future Yankees GMs or managers, 
and said, quote, I want to introduce you to Brian Cashman. His dad is a good friend, and someday you'll all be fired, and he'll be the general manager of the Yankees. Did that really happen? Never happened. <laughs> but I can tell you what did happen. Yeah, that never happened. Um, but I remember being in a meeting, uh, and I was, you know, with the low-hanging fruit. So in the meeting, it was in the boss's office, and Bowden was there, and Sid Thrift was there, and Dallas Green, and Gene Michael. I mean, our, all of our heavy hitters, Bob Quinn. And I was on the like on the couch. I was the, the guy back then. It was really not many computers and stuff. It was stat books and stuff. So I had all the, the support, you know, in the event that any of our guys needed help while they were at the big nights of the round table with the boss, who was pretty intimidating. And he was really crushing them because there was a player he wanted um, from the White Sox. I think it was the White Sox at the time. It was either the White Sox or the Toronto Blue Jays. And so he was describing the player, but he couldn't think of the player's name. And everybody at the table, the big boy table, they couldn't spit the name out. And uh, they didn't know who it was. And I was very uncomfortable because I thought I figured out who he was talking about, but I was like, do I speak up or not? And he's killing these people. So then I just felt compelled to speak up. I'm like, sir, are you talking about Kenny Williams? And he slams his hands on the, the table. God damn it, the kid knows more about this game than any one of you guys. I should have him be the GM and replace all of you. And, blah, blah. and he just let them have it. Um, but And it's funny because in years gone by, I become really good friends with Kenny Williams. He was a GM, obviously, for the White Sox. Sure. And he was the president of baseball operations there, won a World Series. Uh, but Kenny Williams uh, was playing active at the time, was a high-end draft pick, and and uh, a player for some reason boss was starting to ask about but nobody he couldn't remember his name he described the player and i was able to figure it out bail those guys out but george's response to them was i should make him gm and he should replace you guys because he knows the players you don't so sort of a twist on the story but it's you know the the story that was a story that's real the one that Bowden talks about that (laughs) that's he uh, misremembered that's that's what you would call fake news fake news there we go George used to go through GMs at record pace. He had 10 of them in the 1980s alone. How did you manage to last so long working for him? We had great players and we had great teams. I mean, uh, that's the bottom line. Uh, We got out of the gate winning three straight world championships. Uh, We were in four straight World Series. Should have won four straight. Uh, And, you know, we kept winning divisions. Every now and then it was a wild card. But we just, we had great players. uh, And, you know, timing's everything. What was the biggest thing you learned from him? That, you know, I'd say he, he used to have a sign on his desk, lead, follower, get the hell out of the way. And uh, and then he also talked about, it, you know, it's lonely at the top when you're ma- having to make the final calls. And so I, I kind of, you know, again, when you're sitting in a bigger chair and you have to make difficult decisions, uh, you're flying, you're a lot of times you're flying solo missions. You know, you you, you, you get everybody in the room, you get their in- input, and, but then at some point somebody has to make a final call. And, and in many cases, it's not popular. Uh, and but you have to be willing to make the tough decisions, and you know, and then live with the consequences. It's easier to do so when you're the owner, you know, because uh, you know you you can show up the next day. So you just have to make sure that you know your decision making is consistent and good, and has a strong process behind it, and and uh, and it's supporting the franchise, you know, in the present and the future. So uh, I I learned that. Listen, if you're going to want aspiring to be in a leadership position, you just have to have the backbone and the thick skin to do what you think is right despite the high winds of negativity, pressure, or disappointment that others are going to get when you make those tough calls one way or the other. And um, so, you know, the boss, you know, talked about that a lot. 1998, your first year as GM, you guys have just won the World Series in 96, been back to the playoffs in 97. Your first season, you brought in Scott Brocious, Chili Davis, Chuck Knobloch, and Orlando Hernandez. Was there any sense of wanting to put your own imprint on the team with those acquisitions, even though the core of the team was the same? No. I mean, in, the, in Scott Brocious's case, that was a decision that uh, I was the assistant GM on. I helped put that deal together because uh, the way Bob Watson, that was the GM at the time, um, he divided the general managers in the game. Bob gave me a lot of autonomy. And so as, the, as Bob's assistant, I took all the young general managers, and he stayed. He was working with... The John Hart's, the Pat Gillicks, the John Scherholtzes, the Ron Schulers, and et al. and and uh, Sid Thrifts and stuff. And then I was given Kevin Towers, Billy Bean, you know, all the younger, newer guys in the game. So Billy Bean and I put that brocious deal together involving Kenny Williams as wrapped around, if I remember right, the expansion draft or something. And uh, 
and so it went down. Uh, but it went down on Bob's watch and Bob's final call to to bless the deal. So, but anyway, the uh, any deals that I've made since I've been here, you know, is not about any putting any imprint in any way, shape, or form. It's just about how how is this going to make us better in the short or long term. It's just going to have some sort of benefit um you clearly or you don't do the deal whether it's clearing money whether it's improving a position uh, and in most cases especially back then it was short-term decision making it was about how are we going to put ourselves in a position to be a world champion you know over the next six months forgetting you know the the second or third or fourth year out so so all those situations played out with that type of decision making and process and in play were you worried about your job after the one and four start uh, I mean, I already knew what I was getting into. I mean, that, that's the one thing uh, people asked many times about staying power, uh, as you have. And I, I grew up here in, in this Yankee system. And I think if you were trained outside, you know, the Steinbrenner family and you know, were imported in, you were already preconditioned to other stimuli, so to speak, uh, or a certain way about how things operated. And I think it would be very hard to adjust to, you know, working on the boss if you had success somewhere else and then came here and assumed that you could still, you know, go about your business the same way here. You know, I grew up under the uh, the boss's rule, and uh, and that, you know, he was extremely difficult to work for, extremely demanding, uh, and every day potentially the game plan would change. And you really just had to adjust and work well with all your coworkers to help support each other to, you know, to whatever end he wanted on every given day, it's just it was just a different culture uh, compared to the normal and maybe environments and other, you know, baseball operations throughout the game. Um, so uh, I just think I was more prepared because I grew up under him, uh, and then if I had been taught by anybody else or any other organization and, and got hired from you know as a new hire being imported in after about ten years somewhere else, so. It, I think that allowed me to have uh, uh, perspective and staying power and roll with everything because nothing was new to me. The 98 team wins 114 regular season games, wins the World Series. People call it the greatest team ever. Yet before the 99 season, you trade David Wells or Roger Clemens. Was there a sense of trying to even outdo the 98 team going into 99? Well, I think you have to always be open-minded to remake yourself and, be, and somehow improve uh, and that 98 team was special. Everything went our way. You know, people were dedicated and committed to each other. And, and I remember, you know, lessons learned from 96. That after we won in 96, we brought almost the same team back except for John Wetland. Um, he left as a free agent, so Mariano Rivera became the closer. And we mustered a wild card in the first round knockout in 97 with essentially the same team. That team did not get gel like it did the previous year we had infighting we you know it was like you know three musketeers in 96 all for one and one for all in 97 it was completely different even though it was almost entirely the same personnel um so i learned from that so in 98 we had an the magical carpet ride uh 125 wins and 50 losses and and something just dramatic and special and then i noticed that winner like david wells uh, who was you know uh, one of the special participants in the 98 season he was partying all year in the winter time i mean with and, and putting on weight and he was out partying with tom arnold and flying all over the place and it was just a little different vibe of will we be as committed going into next year 99 as we were as 98 and here's this big uh you know john wayne type you know and, and roger clemens who had accomplished everything in the game cy young awards uh, all stars i mean he's one of the game's best pitchers of his generation and he'd done everything he was you know a big workout the fiend and the only thing he had in one is a championship and i knew that man was going to be motivated at all end and uh so we had a lot of discussions internally and if we could find the right deal we felt that going forward roger would be a, a huge impact on us so so you know we made the tough decisions and that was not an easy one but we felt it was better for as we move forward that would allow us to get closer to the championship or championships and it played out that way to be quite honest um it was a tough call but i think it was the right call Arguably, of all the trades you've made, the biggest one you made was in 2004, bringing Herod to New York. Do you ever think about what might have happened if Aaron Boone doesn't go out to play basketball that night? No, I don't think that. I mean, it was a, 
I mean, unfortunately, that happened to Aaron, and thank you know, I'd say thankfully he was honest. You know, he honored his contract. He told us exactly what happened, and and next thing you know, now we're looking for a third baseman, and it's just, uh, you know, I think it was a spectacular coup to to be able to finalize a deal and and, and bring Alex over to New York, and and you know, it certainly garnered a ton of attention and, and impacted us in so many different ways, and you know. Uh, I thought it was a great acquisition, and he, you know he impacted us, uh, you know, on that on the playing field, and, and was a high-end performer. And so it was probably the biggest deal I've ever made. His t- tenure here, 2004 to 2016, had a lot of ups and downs. How do you characterize his time in New York? I probably best said the way you just said it. There was a lot of ups and downs. Um, you know, certainly experienced a lot of. Ups and downs throughout the process. We don't win an 09, that 09 World Championship without him, you know. So I've got another ring in my uh, possession uh, because of Alex Rodriguez and, and what he did during that 09 season. I think we had missed opportunities. Um, you know, I think uh, you know, I, I not just with Alex, but the teams Alex played with, uh, we just didn't play well enough when we were in the postseason. I thought we had the best team on paper many years and didn't. You know, finish the job for whatever reason. I mean, it, listen, it's it's a sport for a reason. Anything can happen, and and uh, but you know, so ups and downs, without a doubt. There was a lot of a uh, lot of good times and a lot of bad times. Is there one particular trade you've made in your career where you felt buyer's remorse? You know, there's a there's a yeah. I mean, I, you only feel that after the fact when you have a chance to look back, and you know, clearly it didn't work out for you, and it worked out with somebody else. So we did a deal with the Marlins. Uh, when we signed Scotty Brocious to an extension, uh, which continued to help us win championships, uh, and we traded a young third base prospect, uh, Mike Lowell, to the Florida Marlins uh, for three pitching prospects, and we were thin at the upper levels on the pitching prospects. And and I know the deal played out like, oh my gosh, look at all the pitching they got back, and it was you know you know widely uh, you know praised. And it didn't play out that way. Uh, Mike Lowell turned out to be obviously a, a very productive player for quite some time, and, and far exceeded any of our evaluations on him. And uh, you know, he's been a very good. He was a very good and productive player and a world champion uh, for several different teams, not just the Marlins, but eventually Boston later on in the trade. So, what's the best trade you've made? Best? I don't know. I mean, there's. I don't have a list in front of me, and I've made so many. Um, you know, so I mean, the Alex Rodriguez trade, the you know the Roger Clemens trade, the uh, David Justice trade at the deadline. You know, um, that may have been the most immediately impactful one, right? Yeah, uh, but there's there's been a ton that have been beneficial. I mean, we're living with Didi Gregorius. That's worked out really well. And the Nick Swisher trade from the White Sox was a big one that you know really worked out well for us. So you know, we've had our share of. Of good deals, and unfortunately, I'm, you know, we've got some ones that hopefully my uh, therapist has helped repress, right? You know, uh, that I can't remember right now too easy on instant recall. But, but I, you know, it's hard to say, you know, instantly if you know if you don't have the questions in advance, like, like what what's the ones that you'd stand out the most for you? I spit out the ones that came to mind rather quickly. Right. I may have missed somebody. I apologize if I did. You you had front row seats for or front row seat for the entire careers of both Derek Jeter and Mariano Rivera. What made them so special? Besides their obvious talent, I mean, it seemed like there was more to them than just what they did on the field for you. I mean, they obviously the performance speaks for itself, but their commitment to excellence, um, you know, matched their performance. I mean, they were they were very structured, um, uh, you know, athletes that you know had moral compasses that they followed, and and uh, they, you know, are great teammates, and you know, they're just you know, models of consistency. I mean, they went about their business a certain way every day, every way, and, and it, you know, they didn't, you know, change. So that's why, obviously, uh, they're both going to be first ballot Hall of Famers, and the only question is, will they be both unanimous? They should be. Um, but time will tell on that. But, I mean, the reason I have staying power is because I had a chance to work at the same time as these guys that emerged as, you know, New York Yankees. As GM of the Yankees, you're frequently second-guessed by reporters, columnists, talk radio hosts, fans, and pretty much everybody else in the world. Do you need a thick skin to hold this job as long as you have, and did it take time to develop that? Yeah, I, that, absolutely. I think uh, it's healthy to be defiant. 
but it's healthy to keep perspective. It's healthy to be objective, and it's healthy to be a lone wolf and realize that. I think in the lone wolf, I describe it as, you know, you know, you have you have a path, you have a mission, and you know it, you're going to take that path, and it's going to be a solo mission. I mean, you're working with people here, but in terms of the attacks that can come your way, or the questions, or the uh, second guessing about <clears throat> steps you're making, you know, you just always have to keep in perspective that you ha- you're the one that's providing an entire amount of information as well as ownership interests that you're executing game plans and, you know, with a, uh, an end game in, in playing, you just got to stay the course. So, you know, you got to recognize too, that, you know, you're not going to make every right decision. You're going to have to live with your mistakes and, uh, and somehow then get past them and survive them by, you know, stringing together as many quality decisions as possible. Cause no one's walking on water in these jobs. You know, we all have our blemishes. We all have our mistakes and we all have our bad free agent signs and our bad trades, but obviously the people that stay around long enough have less of those than others. And, uh, uh, but you have to have a thick skin. You've been known to be a bit of a prankster having been the target of them on a few occasions. I can certainly attest to that. What's the best prank you've pulled with the Yankees? Wow, the best prank. I wish I had ammunition for that. I've done a lot. <laughs> um, I don't even know if I can... My mind wasn't there. I mean, <laughs> that was a, it's a good one, a curveball I wasn't expecting, and that's why you made me freeze. Trying to keep you on your toes here, Cash. It you made know? me freeze. I mean, I, I've done a ton. Um, oh, I got I got. I mean, I got one that... I remember Gene Michael was our general manager. Um, this might not be the best one, but I remember... Uh, there was a manager, and he had managed in the game. He'd done everything in a game of baseball. So then uh, uh, he was our general manager at the time, and I, I was the assistant GM. And so I prank called him, uh, pretending I was a reporter from the Miami Herald. And I think Renee Lodgman had just been dismissed down in Miami. And I was calling, I was, I disguised myself as somebody out of Miami Herald and said that I was calling this, you know, I determined that he's on a short list of managerial candidates and he would ever leave the GM's job to go back to managing and you know and and you know he bought it it's, right and uh and next he just said well I couldn't comment on something like that and you know and 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 I just started and you could tell he was answering the question very seriously and respectfully and stuff like that and and I just started laughing so hard and I mean so hard on the phone I, mean, I almost had tears in my eyes and, and he was and then he got mad he was like who is this who is this I was like it's cash who it's cash <laughs> and then after he calmed down he was he, he was he, he was like you got me you got me and it was fun so I mean whether it's prank calls whether it's Fart machines, whether it's putting, uh, putting fake trades on your coffee table at the winter meetings for reporters to see. Yeah, whether it's uh, <laughs> you know fake the fake news that seems to be the word of the day now with fake trades of to the Yankees. When is that Ben Sheets trade happening anyway? Yeah, yeah, I can't remember who the teams were, but yeah. I, I remember laughing at that. And I mean, uh, listen, you have to have fun, and I like to do that. So I like to try to have fun and and make everybody else laugh. Usually at somebody else's expense. So, uh, but you know, I've rubbed off on my guys and girls because they, uh, uh, everybody who works here, they, they, you know, they try to give now as good as they get. And so it's, you know, I put a target on my back when, when I get somebody, they're going to get me too at some point. There's been a long running theory, usually as you're approaching the end of a contract, that you'd love to run a smaller mid-market team to show that you can be successful at this job without a $200 million payroll. Yet here we are and you're entering your 20th season as the Yankees GM. Could you see yourself ever doing this with another team? got to work i mean uh my preference would always be to be here but if i'm not here and i you know somebody you know has an interest and you know what are you going to do you know you're going to you know listen at some point you know there i will not be invited back uh i guess so to speak and and then uh, that means i'll have to pursue whatever opportunities whether it's broadcasting whether it's you know media whether it's you know if i have the opportunity to be a gm somewhere else you know, I, I, you know, I have no idea what tomorrow will bring, but uh, I'm certainly not opposed to it. I wouldn't be afraid of it. Um, you know, I've won world championships with the highest payroll, but you know, I know one of the years we won it, I think, was with the sixth or seventh highest payroll. So, uh, it, you know, I'm not ashamed or embarrassed for you know winning here. If you, it's all about winning. It doesn't matter how you get there, as long as you're the last team standing. And and uh, I'm proud of everything we've done and continue to do. And I'm proud of. You know what's coming, and I'm proud to just be a part of that process with a lot of people that that uh, got us here. Few GMs get to make the kind of splash you did after the 2008 season. Sabathia, Burnett, Teixeira, Swisher trade. 
Was it relief or satisfaction to have those moves pay off immediately with the title in 2009? Um, well, clearly satisfaction. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say relief would be the right word. I, the only time I would say it was a relief was when we were in against the Mets in 2000. You know, it was, you know, the Yankees won 98-99, and now here we are in 2000, and now they hear the Mets coming up, and George was all in my grill with, and Joe Torre's grill about you can't lose to the Mets. <coughs> you know, uh, how horrific that would be and, you know, we'll lose the city, that type of stuff. And, and so it just, when we beat the Mets, that was relief. And then I remember Bud Selig as commissioner talking to Tori and I in 2003, we're playing the Marlins in the World Series. And I guess Joe and I both looked, you know, just exhausted. Uh, and it was game three. And he, and he goes, you guys are in the World Series. You look terrible. <laughs> And he's like, and he was just trying to party. Like this is, should be the most enjoyable time of your life, and you guys are on death row. Uh, but you know, working here, you know, uh, so at times, I understand the question about it's just a relief when you do win and you're supposed to win. That certainly occurred against the Mets, um, but it was pure joy when you know we won in '09 and uh, and any of the other times. When you signed Sabathia, you told us that you had been looking two years ahead at him being a free agent, and that's why you decided not to trade for Johan Santana. Do you, I mean, is is the free agent class a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, does that play a big role in what you do now, or was that a unique situation? Obviously, we look at the free agent class two years from now, and people are already connecting you guys to Bryce Harper, to Manny Machado, all these big names that are going to be free agents. Do you, you know, is that, when you're thinking ahead and looking at your planning, is that something you do regularly? No, um, and it was a year in advance and in uh, that circumstance, and it, and it was more of we had an opportunity to trade for a significantly costing starter in Johan Santana, and it was going to cost us at least three pieces off of our 25-man roster to get that done. And I didn't think our system was where it needed to be to be a world championship contender. So, so the internal arguments we're having about whether we do or we don't, you know, do the Johan Santana deal was my position strong position with ownership was that we're not ready to win yet give me a year and and I'm like and I'm looking for examples to to anchor to and one was like listen we need to keep Phil Hughes and we need to keep Melky Cabrera and we need to keep uh, Ian Kennedy I think it was off the top of my head those three guys and and then well, there's a free agent in CC Sabathia in six months that you know, and he was playing in a small market so there was no expectation they were going to be able to retain him so he would in theory be going to market this is before like revenue sharing was really kicked in and teams were able to retain their players so my attitude was to ownership hey uh, this guy stays healthy he's gonna hit the market and you know we'll have a good shot at him and wouldn't what's our team gonna look like if we have a cc and retain all these assets versus trade them all and not be good enough this year and then signing cc next year we're still not good enough so it, that was the approach so uh, in terms of all the rumblings about free agents in the future that keep get getting ramped up you know uh, i've said and i continue to say and, I, and, uh, and if you stuck a lie detector test on me i would pass is that it's our hope and it's my hope that we have enough young talent that pops here that we don't have to go to marketplace and sign massive contracts for somebody else's success that they had already for six years or more um you know the best business is if you can develop your own stars and then work on retaining them for yourselves and then filling in around the blanks with trades and free agents that way. It doesn't mean that we won't be big game hunters for the biggest game, but the preference would be, you know, uh, to to be hunters like we always are, uh, but like everybody always is, but the foundation comes from within first and foremost. Not mentioning any players by name because they don't like to get you involved in tampering. Is it different when big game players, <laughs> using your big game hunters uh, concept, hit free agency at 25 versus 30, 31? Is that, do, you, do you look at those players differently in terms of going out and signing other people's players when they're in their prime or even entering their prime? I would think it'd be different. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, those players have a much longer career and they haven't really even hit their prime years yet. So, so age is always a big factor, um, as we've learned over time. And in many cases, the hard way, age is always a factor in free agency and what age and how many years they're looking for. So, All right, I'll cross out the Harper Machado question. Uh, two years ago, you went on a big spending spree in free agency. Tanaka, Ellsbury, McCann, Beltron. 
those moves didn't result in the same success as the 09 group. Two of those guys were already gone. How frustrating was it to make those kinds of moves and not have it pan out the way it did five years earlier? I'd say I don't look at it that way as much as it's just frustrating when you don't win. Uh, everything, every decision we try to make is is designed to get into getting us closer to a world championship. So some of those players are still here, and if uh, we can win while they're here, then and hopefully they're contributing in, uh, to that end, um, then part of it's worked out. You know, so uh, but everything we try to do is to to obviously benefit benefit us in the short and long term, and 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 somehow bring a new championship back to. To the, to the New York Yankee fan base. So. You'd never been a seller of the trade deadline before last year. You traded away four players. What was that experience like for you going through that for the first time? Um, high stakes poker, I guess, so to speak. Uh, uh, you never want to be in a position to have to do that. But when you're in a position that you, you, you when you're in those positions, you need to make the right decisions for your franchise. And I feel like it's tough a decision that was. We, we made... Uh, the absolute right call for this franchise's future, and uh, it's not part of the Steinbrenner DNA um, to, I guess, uh, quit or give up. Uh, but what is, I think, in anybody's DNA is to make good, sound business decisions. And I think, you know, uh, there was that fork in the road that we were faced, which is, you know, do we want to double down on a roster that hasn't performed up to expectations and uh, or do we want to call it what it is and recognize it's very important right now. There's some high winds, a storm of brewing out there, and we better tack our sails and, and change direction and change course or we could sink. And uh, I think we made the prudent business decision for uh, the franchise and our fan base, and, and we will be rewarded for that. This current youth movement's gotten a lot of attention. Has the fan base handled it better than you thought? No, I felt I, I feel I have a pretty good pulse on what the fans' interests are, and and uh, I think the fans were hungry for this. They needed this. They wanted this, and they got it. And uh, I think they're responding in kind. I think they're excited about you know uh, a lot of the youngsters, and and you know, they really are out with the old and in with the new. How much do you think Gary Sanchez's two months helped keep that excitement going? No, no, no question. Listen. You know, anytime you can produce somebody from your system that they've heard about for a while that can come up and then all of a sudden become instant success, you know, it just, you know, has such a, a positive rippling effect throughout the franchise from fans to, to, the, to your scouts, to your player development, to, to your front office, everything. I mean, it just, it's a breath of fresh air and it, you know, ignites everybody in such a positive way. So it was, that was really huge. There's been a lot of talk over the years about the Yankees' inability to develop young starting pitchers. Do you think that's a fair criticism? I mean, it's a, it's, yeah, it's a fact. But I, I think part of a, part of the process has been, you know, certainly where we draft, you know, because we've had a lot of success. We've not been allowed to tank and and go off the board and and therefore get access to some of the high end stuff that that uh, that are pretty much it plays out to be impactful. Uh, part of it is, you know, we can't get out of our own way because we, we don't have the patience to let guys finish off their development because if you possess some unique ability that stands out amongst everybody else, whether it's the, the Java Chamberlain's or the Ian Kennedy's or now it's Severino's or before that it was Mitchell or, or Shane Green or whatever, we're pulling them up before their development's finished. Uh, and uh, where teams like a Tampa, for instance, that I think they're going to wait till they have their, their four pitches down and their innings limits are all exceeded at the minor league level they they're very disciplined in that approach as they finish off their starters but for us we've found like it well if i'm looking at my owner and he's like what's our best team we can take north well we can take this guy he's not necessarily 100 percent finished off but we can stick him in our pen he can be in the back end of a rotation you know because he's better than some of the guys we already have and and then you cut corners and uh so i think that probably plays a role in it so but you know, and then, you know, sometimes we don't, you know, make the right decisions either when we're making draft selections or signings and stuff like that. And, and on top of it all, playing in New York is a lot different animal than playing anywhere else. So, do you, with this crop of young guys you have now, pitchers and position players, do you have to have limit that temptation of bringing them up too soon? I mean, do you need to let them finish off their development in the minors before you? If you can, it's always in your best interest to have that safe bet. Um, but again, we're trying to win at the same time, so that's the balancing act. That's the, the you know you're getting a little that 
it's so much, I'm giving the audience a chance to walk into our meetings with those are debates that we have constantly. It's it's development versus the need for to to compete uh, on the, on a daily basis in New York versus you know I mean versus it's okay if we lose now um, so we can win later. That's not something that unfortunately we're really allowed to do. We have to try to to, to win on a daily basis and. And, you know, that's why you're seeing our record. You know, we've had winning seasons now for I don't know how many years uh, because we're not allowed to, to cry uncle, you know, and say another day. If, if the guy's better than what we already have and he gives us a better chance to win, most of the time that player's going to wind up on our 25-man roster ahead of schedule and because that's just the way we go about our business. Is it unrealistic for fans to think Torres, Severino, Judge, Bird, Sanchez, whoever it may be, which of those guys is going to be the next core four? I mean, is that just an unfair comparison to try to think who's going to be the next Jeter, Posada, Rivera, Pettit? Yeah, I think so because if you look in sports, you got the New England Patriots, you got the New York Yankees. You know, you see these these teams that have strung together some historic championship runs, but they're rare. They're extremely rare. So let's just get it one championship. Let's just get our next one. Not, not worrying about if we can have a, a core that's part of uh, multiple championships. We just want to develop uh, you know, a successful. Our successful mission effort is about winning a world championship. And then, then if, if we can get to that again, then we'll uh, worry about another one if, we, you know, if we're lucky enough to get to the next one. There was a time in the not-so-distant past where some teams were looked at as analytic teams, some teams were looked at as scouting teams. Do you think pretty much now league-wide everybody's just trying to find that balance between the two versus relying exclusively or near exclusively on one versus the other? Yeah. I, I mean, I think the most successful teams are, are that balancing act. I think they're using each tool uh, to benefit their decision-making. So whether it's analytics, whether it's you know the uh, what the eyeball test is telling you, the people who really know the game that can uh, scout you know uh, somebody's mechanics and and uh, and how they're whether hitting or pitching um, what's necessary that can improve their their uh, their future potential you know it, it's along with so many other areas mental skills performance science you know um, player development uh, the, uh, amateur scouting versus pro scouting it's you know there's a lot of uh, sandboxes to be playing there and and you have to include every one of them uh, you know and to your advantage so we're trying to use every tool in the toolbox uh, that hopefully we can string every, all that information together that we gather to make quality decisions is the analytics explosion the biggest change in the game from the time you started to now analytics as well as uh, uh, the internet wasn't around when I started <laughs> so so I, you know the coverage the blogging the the, the media attention, you know, ESPN. So the media explosion and the analytics are the two more impactful changes, so to speak, in the game. Because you know, back in the day, it was the sporting news and the box scores and stuff like that. Right. First, and the local newspapers. That was the coverage. And but now, you know, we've got a lot more differences. Now you have LB.com. What more do you need? Exactly. <laughs> you were throwing exit velocity at us a few years ago before it became a popular term. Now MLB Statcast has made that, as well as a lot of others more available to the public. Do you think that's changed the way fans look at the game at all? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's there's some extremely brilliant fans out there that uh, that are successful uh, running their own businesses or being a part of, you know, uh, you know, that they do this stuff for their hobbies and they write ex- very impressive, you know, uh, stories for whether it's a website or their own blog or their own opinions, they do their own studies on, on a lot of different features out there, whether it's receiving or, you know, uh, launch angles and, you know, st- things like that. So uh, it's, I'll tell you what, there's a there, there's a very smart population out there and they're focused on our game and, and uh, you know, so it, it, give you, it gives you a little bit of an idea of some of the things that go on behind the scenes because it's going on outwardly because now because of MLB, they're providing a lot of this data to the public, which then they can do with whatever they want with. And they're spending a great deal of time studying it and making opinions from it. And some of them are off-base, but some of them are like, wow, that that person should be working for us. (laughs) As the years have gone on, you've become increasingly more comfortable in your own skin as far as speaking your mind uh, in some ways that a lot of executives wouldn't. 
the Rafael Soriano press conference comes to mind. When and why did that change for you? Well, I don't, I, I don't have a, a BS meter very well. I, I, I feel like if, you know, I can't go out there, you know, and publicly, uh, like, change. If I, in the Sorianos, for instance, like, I had already publicly stated time and time again, we were not signing any free agents, and that was lock, stop, and step, step with our ownership and stuff. And so when ownership made a change of position, you know, I was already pregnant with my position several times over, doubling down, not ever expecting it to change. So then when, you know, Alstimer decided to sign him, which is his right, he owns the team, I, I even talked to him. I was like, I'm going to have to explain this, and the only way to explain this is to tell the truth. Uh, that, I, you know, we wanted to retain the pick. That's what we recommended, but you chose in the end to, this is what you wanted to do, and that's what I'm going to say. And he said, no problem. You know, I said, because I can't lie about it. No one's going to believe me if I did, and right. it's going to hurt my credibility. And uh, so I don't know. I, I just think that, you know, uh, I, I've gotten to, in my life, uh, you live and you learn. It's, I think it's if you're going to communicate with your fan base, you got to be very direct and honest. Uh, I, I, everything I say is strategic. Uh, I'm leaving breadcrumbs to lead our fan base, which is our customers, uh, to to follow, you know, a path to something, whatever it's going to be. Like, I'll say certain things for certain reasons so that the shock of whatever's coming isn't going to throw them off. And and if there's a position change, there should be a rational explanation for it. And sometimes a rational explanation is I didn't make that decision, actually. Somebody else did. That's, right. you know, that's, and I just think it's important to talk that way. And, and thankfully we have a, an ownership that allows me to do that, you know, because I think it serves them well too. Uh, and, um, so, and I'm, I'm also a big believer in landing the plane. I don't like, you know, uh, circling the airport for hours on hours and hours. I like to cut to the chase, uh, and land the plane and, and be as direct as I possibly can and move on. And I just think it's better for everybody if you can be that way in life. And for over time, I've emerged and evolved to that level of communication, I guess. After the Cubs won last year, people already started reserving Theo's place in Cooperstown. Do you ever think about the Hall of Fame when it comes to your stuff? No, I don't. I don't. I, uh, you know, but I do know Theo's getting there without question. <laughs> um, you know, he's obviously had a tremendous run and, and I told told Goose down here that, you know, I hope Theo's plaque lines up right next to you <laughs> <laughs> at Ivy League GM. That's right. So. Uh, you've repelled a building in Connecticut for the last six, seven, eight years. You jumped out of a plane, sadly broke your leg in the process. What what turned you into a daredevil in your early 40s? Well, I've always been. Um, you know, I, I've, I've always been someone that that has wanted to experience all that life's had to offer. And so whether it's... You know, scuba diving, you know, which I did when I was the assistant farm director when I was living here in Florida. Uh, back when we were, had the Jeters and the Riveras and the Bernies and all those guys in our system, I was the assistant farm director. So I was, I got Patty certified down here and uh, scuba dive 12 miles off St. Pete and all that. So, so I was in, I just did, always got into different things. It was like, I got to try this just to say either and learn to love it or just say at least check it off a bucket list of I, I did it. And so I just continued that. You know, now as GM of the Yankees, I, I get opportunities more so. People are like, hey, you want to jump out of this airplane? Hey, you want to do, climb down this building? Like, that wasn't coming my way, you know, as Joe Blow. It's coming my way as GM of the New York Yankees. So it's provided me a platform to at least participate in things that I never would have had a chance to. And I'll, I'll take people up on that. I left off your walking around the CN Tower in Toronto. Didn't you do the that? CN, they yeah. call it Toes Over Toronto. <laughs> you know, or, or sleeping on the streets for the homeless or whatever you want. It's like I'll do, I'll try to do anything and everything, you know, time permitting. Uh, and, yeah, I got more things I'd like to try. After the Chris Sale trade, you called the Red Sox the Golden State Warriors of baseball. Predictably, we all put that on the back page the next day. Uh are you entertained by that kind of stuff? Do you think about how your words are going to play out uh, in the papers and online before you say them? Or absolutely, yeah. I, I know exactly. You came to that. You came to that that session with us with that Golden State Warriors thing ready to fire. Uh, you know, when that that trade was consummated, you know, that's the first thing I thought about, which is, wow, look at what they've done, and and I know how it's going to play out for them, and and you know, um. Listen, Steve Kerr does a great job managing that team. Oh, I mean, John Farrell. Uh, and uh, yeah, so it's a lot of talent, you know. It's a lot of talent. With talent comes pressure uh, to perform. And so, uh, 
you know, I think Dave Dombrowski's done everything he possibly can to provide, you know, that city with a world championship team. And uh, so they got 162 games to show it. Is it fun to know that you can pretty much get yourself on the back page of a newspaper anytime you want? No, 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 no. No, I've, I've found my way. I found my way on the back page far too often, so I know the pressures. Listen, the big markets, the pressures are big. So, but they, you know, listen, the franchise has done a great job, and they've, you know, uh, and we're, we're hoping to get back into the game uh, sooner than later, and, uh, and hopefully, maybe as early as 17. We'll see. But, uh, uh, you know, the way this game works and the way the system is set up, what's up must come down, what's down must come up, and I feel like we're, we're coming back up, and uh, I think our stock is on the rise, and. And I hope we can prove that out on the field of play. We always hear about NFL coaching trees, the coaches around the league who worked for Bill Parcells or Bill Walsh. When your guy Billy Epler gets the GM job in Anaheim, is there a feeling of pride that, that one of your guys has now got his own team to run? Yeah. I mean, uh, Billy's, I think, one of the of the game's bright executives. The Angels made a very wise choice. He had other general manager actual offers, um, you know, uh, and this is, the, this is the place. You know, he's from Southern California, so kind of – worked out well and I think you know he's excited out there and I'm proud you know uh, about how good he made us while he was here and you know he made me a better GM and and I know he's going to make uh, that that operation you know what it needs to be too so um, but yeah there's no doubt you you're, you're you have a lot of pride with the people that you work with throughout the game and and then when they go on and do other things that are bigger and better uh, you know that's why you're, you're training your staff you're looking for better players on the field but you're also looking for a great front office and a front office tree that's going to continue to produce as well. For a long time, it seemed like the Red Sox were chasing the Yankees. Starting 2004, they've won three championships, and it almost seems like the roles have reversed. How the dynamics of the rivalry changed since Boston finally broke its curse? You know, they've taken on a lot of the Yankee characteristics, I guess, so to speak. Um, you know, they have been, you know, they have been producing. You know, and you have to give them a great deal of credit from the international, and the amateur scouting side. They've been very productive with their scouting assessments and then uh but they've been spending a ton of money at the same time you know uh much like the yankees have always done and so i know in the past with the famous larry lucchino quote of uh evil empire evil empire or what have you or <laughs> or, or the uh, i think there was always the you know the impression that they they did not like the spotlight that they were considered the yankee in the yankee arena i think they more than exclamation pointed the fact that they are you know, you know, right there in the Yankee arena as, as a behemoth in this game. And, and uh, you know, there's nothing to be, you know, um, embarrassed about that. You know, I think they're using all their resources to their benefit, just like we try to do. And um, they've just been, we've just been on different tracks lately. But, again, our, I assure you, our, we're, we're, we're going to be changing that. Do you remember the player that led to the Evil Empire quote? Uh was it Contreras? Yeah, very good, very good. Uh, the postseason was such a given for you guys for so many years. They, you guys made the playoffs in each of your first 10 years as GM, 14 of the first 15. We've had one playoff game, a wild card loss to the Astros in the last four seasons. How tough has this period been for you, given what you went through for the first 15 years of your GM okay. time? How tough? I mean, uh, you want to win, uh, but you got to be realistic at the same time about where you are and what you are and, and – uh, you know, I guess I think that all those teams had a chance if everything played out well. I mean, I think that the the year that we wound up in the wild card against Houston, I think if you were looking at us in August, late July, early August, um, we were considered, you know, potential American League. You know, some people would have said, picked, this is the team that's going to represent Amer the American League in the World Series. And Mark Teixeira broke his leg. Um, I think off the top of my head was Tanaka got hurt. Uh, we had one, uh, Valdi got hurt. We had one all of a sudden. So we, we didn't make any trades at the deadline because we were the best team by through July. Uh, and then Toronto obviously went gangbusters and really improved their club, uh, to their credit. And we stood pat. And then we got a hurt in August. And, like, the whole dynamic of our club changed. And so just didn't play out the way we expected it. So... But, I mean, each team, like last year, I thought last year's team had a chance, but then, you know, the, the middle of our lineup didn't perform at all. I mean, Alex disappeared, uh, didn't play the way, you know, he had the previous year, and then and, and Tex, again, was battling injuries. So the productive 3-4 that helped us the previous year massively um, didn't, you know, uh, 
didn't contribute anywhere close to that last year, and it just changed the dynamic. So, um, but what we're trying to do is, as we, you know, as we move forward, hopefully we'll have a much younger, more diversified group, so that we are in a position to not put all our eggs in certain baskets and live and die by it. You know, that we'll be in a much better position. That you know, we're not hoping that everything goes perfect because that's tough enough as it is. That hey, we can adjust it on the run. Uh, we have quality and, and quantity, and that you know it'll be able to sustain us no matter what happens. And uh, so, time will tell. How does Hal differ most from George as a boss? Uh, the boss was very emotional uh, and reactionary, and Hal is very practical and uh, patient. So uh, I think uh, they're both hungry to win, without a doubt. But they just their methods of operation are completely different that way. I mean, uh, George would make extremely emotional decisions that at times could work for us and at times it would you know sabotage you know uh you know a certain trajectory or you might be on uh because of impatience so you know examples like that would be you know that's when a doug drabic would wind up in uh, pittsburgh or you know a fred freddie Griff, mcgriff would wind up in toronto or a jay Buner would wind up in seattle or um because you know we need a short-term fix uh at some long-term interests and and something you would regret later so uh how's very very methodical um and you know and very practical and and his dad was was different and they're both successful in their own right uh and and they both can have success how won a championship in 09 um obviously george won previous championships you know uh you know you know in 77 78 and obviously uh the 96 run that we're on to so we hope you enjoyed our latest throwback episode of executive access in the coming weeks we'll hear from jed hoyer of the cubs mike hazen of the diamondbacks and many more top executives around the league you can search for executive access on apple podcasts spotify google play art 19 or anywhere else you listen to podcasts so be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long if you like what you hear leave us a review while you're at it we always appreciate those And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about executive access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinzan. Stay safe, everybody. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.